It was on the serene beaches of northern France at the crack of dawn on June 6, 1944, that the Allies finally gained a foothold in France and Nazi Europe began to crumble, an event we call D-Day. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. As we celebrate Armed Forces Day, Memorial Day, or Veterans Day, or any time we simply want to pay homage to our brave countrymen who fought to secure freedom for Europe and the world, there's no better place to reflect on that than on the beaches of Normandy. Here, travelers find monuments, museums, cemeteries, and battlefields left in tribute to the courage of the Allied armies, those armies who successfully carried out the largest military operation in history. To help us remember their stories, we'll talk with Elwood von Seibold a World War II buff who guides visitors to the D-Day sites of Normandy. Elwood will help us sort out the options for touring the region and tell us stories of the greatest generation. Come with us as we explore the sites of D-Day on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring the D-Day beaches of Normandy in France, the place where the Allied invasion began in June of 1944 and ultimately pushed the Nazis out of France and eventually ended World War II in Europe. As the greatest generation fades into history, it's important that we remember their stories and their sacrifices. So today, we've invited Elwood von Seibel to help us plan a visit to the D-Day sites in Normandy. Elwood's an Englishman. He moved to Normandy to fulfill a lifelong dream of introducing others to the important battlefields, cemeteries, and memorials of the region. We also invite your calls, your stories, and your questions for Elwood at 877-333-RICK. Elwood, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So why did you move to Normandy? I moved to Normandy because I had a passionate interest in World War II for many, many years, ever since I was a tiny boy. And at a certain stage in my life, I realized that the moment was ready when I wanted to leave my work and I wanted to go and fulfill a lifelong passion by telling people about the history. The opportunity came up, we searched for houses for a long time, and we eventually found a lovely house in the most historic town of St. Mary Glees. That was the first city that was uh, liberated, wasn't it? was the it? very first one to be liberated by the U.S. Uh, so you went, Airborne, yes, you went right. right to the heart of Normandy, the, the kickoff point, really. That is correct, yes. And now you teach, is it mostly Americans, or who do you take on your tours? Mostly Americans. About 95% of the people that I have on my tours are Americans, yes. Is that because 95% of the people that go to Normandy are Americans? No. It seems obvious that, of course, that Americans would want to come to St. Mary's and to the Normandy end of the beaches, but it's just how things have worked out for me. It seems that Americans, they're coming a long way, and they have to be sure that they're going to be shown the right places and told the history as it really occurred by someone who they believe knows what they're talking about. So to that effect, it seems that the majority of my my customers, if you will, are Americans. Now, do Canadians and Brits and Americans all go to Normandy with the same sort of interest? Yes, they do. They most definitely do. People from all over the world now, in actual fact, are coming to Normandy to look at what happened there on the 6th of June and the subsequent days. Uh, almost all of the world is interested in that part of the world. It's really quite incredible. Um, wherever I go, it doesn't matter where I go, but some people obviously sometimes ask you, where do you live? And you say, uh, St. Mary Glees. And, and they all react. They all sure. know this famous little town. I remember the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, the movie. Yes. Um, there was a, a veteran going back to the Normandy, the cemetery there. Yes. And his grandchildren, I think, just didn't get it. And they were all light and happy. And he was really moved. Yes. H- how do you prepare people? Or, or what, are, what advice do you have for people who are going to Normandy to, to properly get it? I always ask people, what preparation they've done in the sense that have they read any books and have they seen any films? And the majority of people have done that. The books, of course, can be any amount of books that come to mind. Of course, the uh, Stephen Ambrose, arguably the most famous of American historians, many, many people have read his lengthy books on D-Day. And that gives people a good overall well-rounded appreciation of D-Day and its subsequent events. So have some background before you go there Indeed, to appreciate I th- it. I think that's very important. And there are obviously three films that I like and recommend to people prior to their coming. And one, of course, is that aged, wonderful old film, The Longest Day, made as long ago as 1963, if I remember rightly. Uh-huh. And uh, it may be old and it may be ancient and uh, daringly shot in black and white in its time. And uh, But it, it is 
a very, very good portrayal of the events leading up to D-Day and still very relevant today, even though, as I say, it's a little bit old. Yeah. Then, of course, you've got Saving Private Ryan. Everybody knows that film. And that, I think, was a film that broke the mold in many respects of the portrayal of armed conflict. And then, of course, you've got uh, Band of Brothers. I think uh, it's the sort of pinnacle, if you will, of realism. Hmm. And uh, that features the build-up to D-Day from the airborne perspective, the airborne point of view. So Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, and Band of Brothers. Yes. Uh, good movies to bone up before you get there. Yes, I think so. Is it possible to visit D-Day and make it worthwhile as a day trip from Paris? Yes, it most certainly is. In fact, um, I would say that 50% of the people that I take around, uh, they quite simply catch a train from Paris, from the Gare Saint-Lazare, and I pick them up in Carenton, and we do a, a day's tour, albeit it's a, it's a short, compact day. Sure. And I take them back to Carenton Station in time to catch the 6 o'clock train, and they're sitting in their favorite restaurant by 9 o'clock in back the evening. Back in Paris. Paris. indeed. So many of us have such limited time. If you're going to be selective and, and have a, a powerful experience, what are the top two or three sites you just got to see? The sites you must see, without any question of doubt, is obviously you've got to see Sainte Marie-Glise, as you so rightfully said, the first town to be liberated. And then I would say Pointe de Hoc, and then I would say Omaha Beach, culminating, if you will, in the uh, in the visit to the American National Cemetery there at Colville-sur-Mer. And not our much. That doesn't make the cut. Not as far as I'm concerned. Okay, there. so Pointe de Hoc, that's where you get the craters and the German yes. pillboxes and yes. the gunning stations, and you get this dramatic bluff feeling and imagine the Allies yeah. climbing up that. Yes. And then... Omaha Beach, that's where you walk on the beach, the center of the invasion. Yes. And then just above that bluff, is that where we have the American Cemetery? That is correct, yes. So when you say Omaha yes. Beach, you're also saying that famous cemetery we always see. Yes, indeed. And what museum do you think um, is the best one that captures the, the story of the Normandy landings? That's a very hard question to answer. There are so many museums around there. Um, and if you had just one museum to go to, I think the Airborne Museum at St. Maragles itself, is, it probably will give you the most well-rounded experience. And this is St. Mary Iglesias you're talking about, S-T-E, St. M-E-R-E-E-G-L-I-S-E. That's right. My favorite museum is the one in Cannes, C-A-E-N. <laughs> the museum in Cannes, if you will, is trying to remind people self-evidently that, that peace is the objective that we should all be now striving towards, and I would not disagree with that under any circumstances. But and it does not. It does. It doesn't try. It doesn't attempt. Okay, so it's not to, a war buff it's not a museum, war, indeed. Is no, it, it's so it's it has a lesson. It finishes with Nobel Peace Prize uh, yeah, thing. Yeah, indeed. I found it was a good look at war in the 20th century, and it celebrates the great Nobel Peace laureates. Yes, and it's very moving. But you're right. If you want a real war museum, you can find it at the, you say the Airborne Museum yeah, in St. Mary Louise. That, that's right. And there's a good one in, in Armanche. It's a little one. Armanche, uh, the Mulberry Harbors, indeed. That is one yeah. of my favorite museums. But to be fair, that does appeal to. The aficionado, if you will, uh, I think. And if you want one cemetery? If you want one cemetery, without any question of doubt, it's the National Cemetery at Colville-Sumer above Omaha Beach. Above Omaha Beach. Yes. That's And what about a German cemetery? German cemetery is at a place called La Combe. That is by far the most evocative of all the German cemeteries, yes. I thought it was very evocative because it reminded me... A lot of German kids. This is late in the war, wasn't it? Hitler was like digging deep for people to fight. Yeah, indeed. So you got 16-year-olds there, 18-year-olds yes, yes. fighting it. 22,000 of them are in there. Amazing. I'm with uh, Elwood van Seibold, and we're talking about D-Day and Normandy landings and World War II. And let's talk with Michael in Cincinnati. Michael, do you have a question for Elwood? Well, I, I really just had a comment um, on the... Uh, what a powerful and moving experience it is to uh, visit at Omaha Beach, which he's talked about. You know, you consider the uh, blood and treasure that we left on that beach. It's just, it's just such a beautiful uh, place. It's meticulously cared for. It's a really serene, peaceful kind of a visit. And, you know, there's so much history there. I just, we just, I took my son there in uh, 2005, and we just really uh, enjoyed the experience. Hmm. Isn't there a viewpoint called the Portal of Freedom or something from the edge of that cemetery looking out over the beach? Yes, there is, yes. That, that is correct. I always like to remind people, by the way, that when you look at the cemetery now, the cemetery in actuality was a scene of fighting itself. It was a scene of German emplacements. It was a situation where fighting actually took place. And as you so rightly say, the serenity, the calm, and the peace that exists today is truly moving. And I go there every day in the summer, and I never cease to be moved by visiting this uh, amazing situation. 
Michael, you're just reminding people that it's a powerful pilgrimage to go there and remember uh, the heroics of that day, aren't you? Oh, it absolutely is. You know, and you um, you see Saving Pryor Ryan and the Ken Burns series, and, and, you know, you hear from the people who were actually there, and I, I just can't imagine being a 19-year-old kid and having LS that dropped down and, uh, you know, with the 50 caliber guns firing on you. I just, I just can't imagine what that would be like, and it's, you know, you can comb, like you were talking about, you can comb uh, the machine gun nests, and you see the viewpoint whether that the Germans had on this hmm. incoming ships, and uh, it's, it really is, um, you know, moving experience just it's, to uh, it's almost a shame stand to s- on that sand. It's almost a shame for an American, I think, to miss that when they go to France. Oh, absolutely. That's, and I kind of had in mind a World War II tour that year with my son, and we were in uh, Belgium, Berlin and different places, and uh, I would say in Paris, the military museum is just an excellent museum. At Les Invalides? Yes. Yeah, that's great, and they've got a new wing dedicated to World War II that's just awesome. Oh, it's just unbelievable, All right. um, and we just really enjoyed that also. All right, Michael, it sounds like you had a good time. Thanks for your call. Yeah, yeah can I say one thing, Rick? Sure. Uh, just like to thank you for making travel so accessible, uh, you know, for, for people, and uh, we've, you know, I've followed your methods, and it's just been just a real joy, and it's just opened up a whole new world that you just don't realize is there, and you just got to take that first step. You really do. I just encourage everybody just to go ahead and do it, and it's intimidating at first, and once you once you start, you just realize that uh, you can go anywhere in the world and, and make it, and uh, I'd just like to thank you for uh, opening that world up. Ah, you're so welcome. It enriches our lives to be able oh, to broaden does. our perspective through travel. Yes. And in the case of Normandy, to remember what happened just within living memory. So it's just great. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. All right, thank you. I'm speaking with Elwood von Seibolt, and he's an Englishman who has now moved to Normandy to follow his passion, which is help visitors understand and appreciate the sights and the memories and the lessons from the Battle of Normandy. Seeing D-Day sites firsthand is a highlight for many Americans traveling to France. We'd like to hear your stories, as well as your questions for Elwood. Our number is 877-333-RICK, and you can write us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine, j'habite dans le Languedoc et je voyage avec Rick Steve. This was French for hello, I'm Sabine. I live in the Languedoc in southern France and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine, j'habite dans le Languedoc, dans le sud de la France et je voyage avec Rick Steves. Amis, 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're learning about the Normandy landings and D-Day and how that can be incorporated into your next trip to Europe. And I'm joined by Elwood von Seibold. Not Seibold. 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 S-E-I. So that's a German name, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. And you lead people around Normandy, World War II sites for a living. For a living, how's yes. Biz- how's business? Uh, business is, has been absolutely tremendous. There's been an insatiable demand. It's been tremendously exciting. And Did uh, you send Ken Burns a thank you for uh, spiking interest? <laughs> no, I haven't managed to do that. Yet. It's interesting. You must see when, when there's a movie like Saving Priving Ryan or something like that, you must see a spike in, uh, in visitors. You do see a spike in visitors, yes. You, you definitely do. But things are changing now because the actual veterans are, in a few years, they won't be visiting yes. anymore. Um, many people ask me th- this question and they say, you know, what, what are you going to do when the veterans die? And I believe... I implicitly believe that the veterans will be dead, but I think that this the terrific interest for this amazing event in history will continue, and I hope it will continue. And I regard it as partly my job, if you will, to keep this interest alive. That That's something that I want to do. The fact that I'm doing this, if you will, as a commercial venture is all right. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very nice, but the fact of the matter is that that at my age, I'm interested also in keeping this history alive. That's what I enjoy doing. That is my passion. Now, I've noticed when I first started traveling, there were veterans from World War I going to Verdun. Yes. No longer happens. Oh, I don't think so. And I think that um, there's probably less interest in Verdun now than there was 30 years ago. That's a very interesting uh, statement, and I very often question many of my American customers uh, as to their knowledge about the American involvement in World War One, and it's quite astounding. I would say about 99% of them have no idea that right. they even participated in World War One at all, which is such a pity. When I think back that uh, your great general, Blackjack Pershing, after his time as leader of the American army, spent the rest of his life trying to make sure that the American nation never forgot the American sacrifice in World War One, And I'm afraid that all of his work seems to have been virtually in vain. And you're hopeful about World War Two. I'm hopeful about World War II, very much so, because, let's face it, the First World War was never recorded in film in anywhere the same way that the Second World War has been recorded. Do the French remember our heroics in World War II? Yes, they do. Uh, There's no question of that. The French people, especially in the Normandy area, are ever mindful of the American sacrifice in that area, and they are, I would say, without any question of a doubt, they are always very grateful about the American sacrifice and and the Allied sacrifice in, in general, may mm-hmm. I say. What do you not, say to Americans, Elwood, who are upset with the French for not remembering that and following us into our uh, foreign policy adventures? That's a difficult one. I try to, I try to avoid politics in my discussions with mm-hmm. either French people or American people who come to visit. I think that's a sensible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's so far removed from what I'm, I'm trying to get people to remember and I, you can't transpose. I can understand that, but I'm, I'm frustrated by Americans that are put off by the French not helping us today because they say they forgot how we helped them in World War II, and I don't think they've forgotten how we helped them in World War II. No, they have not forgotten that. That's clear to me. That is, that is clear to me as well. I think we both agree on that. I was just at a beautiful mom-and-pop chateau in Burgundy, and the uh, aristocratic family, the noble family that lives there, we were visiting them with their film crew. They pulled out their 48-star American flag that they flew over their chateau on D-Day when they realized the Allies were coming to Lovely. free them. Yes. And it was a very touching thing. And, yes, it is. And I, I just believe from the bottom of my heart that the French always will be thankful for and remember what we did, along with the British and the Canadians and and our allies. We mustn't forget the British and the Canadians, of course, absolutely. We have Mike on the line from Georgia. Any comments for Elwood? Well, it's just a very awe-inspiring thing. Um, I've been to Europe a couple of times, and I've visited the cemetery in Luxembourg City, and it's just an awesome sight, just knowing the amount of sacrifice these young men so long ago gave. I haven't been to the uh, D-Day area yet. Is there any recommendations that you might have uh, if I had a two-day length of time to take most advantage of it in that particular area? All right. uh, Where would somebody sleep as a home base, and what would they do if they had two days to see the best of the Normandy sites? 
Right. If you were, if you want to have two days to see the best of the normally sites, I would recommend that you stay in the very attractive small town of Bayou. That is a good central base from which to take your excursions, if you will. Bayou is roughly halfway down between the right and the left-hand flank. So if you talk about the right-hand flank, the right-hand flank of the invasion was Satmarglis, and the left-hand flank is a place called Wistrom, which is way down at the British end of things, and Bayou is roughly halfway between those two points. So you would strike out on day one and do the American end, and then strike out on day two and then do the British invasion beaches, and that would be a place to base yourself. And Bayou is a beautiful town which has a, another invasion history. It's got the famous Bayou Tapestry. Indeed. Because that was from where the Normans invaded England in the one date we all know from the Middle Ages. Yes, 1066. 1066, yes. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks for your call. Thank you. And we have Kim calling us from Nashville in Tennessee. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. Thanks. My grandmother is from Lyon, France, and left uh, after World War II in 1947 and didn't go back uh, until 1992. And when we went back, we went to Normandy and actually went with her brother, who she had not seen since 1947. And so it was really fascinating on top of just being at the cemetery, being at Omaha Beach, but being there with you know, two native French people who had been through the war and still had, I think, some unresolved feelings about it between themselves because they had not seen each other, you know, in so long to kind of go through that. And then uh, on top of it, my grandfather is a a Marine from, um, excuse me, and served in uh, Guadalcanal and in the Pacific. And so he knew names. You know, there were people uh, at the cemetery, you know, buried from his hometown, and so it was a very emotional day for all of us. Uh, so it's just fascinating. Now, Kim, did you go on your own or did you have a guide? We went on our own that time. My husband and I went back in 98 on our honeymoon and went with a guide and did a day trip uh, and just really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for your call, Kim. We have David on the line in Pennsylvania. David, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, Rick. How are you? Doing good. Do you have a comment or a question for Elwood? Yes, I do. Uh, I have had the opportunity to visit a number of different places throughout Europe, and I always make it a point to try to see uh, many of the World War II historical sites. I have been to France and uh, to uh, Point de Hoc and Omaha Beach and the D-Day sites, and also in the U.K., uh, the Cabinet War Room and uh, the Imperial Air Museum and uh, also have enjoyed uh, going to Berlin and seeing some of the sites that uh, are still available to see there. What I was really interested in finding out was uh, with regard to the United Kingdom, whether there are any of the air bases uh, where the B-17s flew from. I had family members that were in a B-17 crew and uh, was wondering if there were any spots still around of those air bases where you could uh, see those. That's a very interesting question. Now, you'll have to understand that I'm not an expert on um, U.S. air bases in the U.K. There are remains of U.S. air bases. And let's let's remember that in Norfolk and Suffolk, there was literally hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of them. It would be a question in your case of finding out which squadron um, your relative actually flew with. And that would be easy then to find out the name of the aerodrome or the name of the village which the aerodrome would have been near. And from that point, of course, then it's simply a question of getting out on the ground and going there and having a look around. Now, I do know that many of the old flight control towers of these old aerodromes are now listed property and are being restored in some instances by the local council authorities. So therefore, you you do have a good chance of perhaps finding out the remains of the aerodrome from which your relative flew uh, B-17s. Well, that's outstanding. Uh, Do you know if there's any websites or anything where that type of information could be researched? Yes. Your first port of call, I would suggest, would be the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. Now, Duxford itself, of course, was a World War II uh, airfield uh, during the war, and that is the Imperial War Museum's Air Force base, if you will, from which actually a B-17 itself does fly regularly 
during the summer. There's hundreds of aircraft there, and that would be the place I would suggest you go, first of all, to start your research. Now, there's an Imperial War Museum actually in London also. That is correct, Which is one of the best war museums in Europe, Indeed, yeah. It's awesome. Don't miss that. It's on the south bank of the Thames, I believe. Yes. Also... Dover has a great World War II museum. Yeah. Surprisingly, you go there to see the Roman lighthouse and yeah. the old castle, and you realize there's a wonderful Battle of Britain museum, I yes. believe. And Eden Camp, outside of York, is a, a prize-winning museum, an award-winning museum, a former prison camp, prison I think, for camp. German prisoners. And it talks about the uh, right. British war effort. A lot of great sites in England to work into your itinerary when you're going back there to learn about World War II. Yes. And Richard's on the line in California. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. Do you have a comment or a question for Elwood? Yeah, I just want to let you know that I took my son to Europe, and his favorite day was a day trip from Paris to the Normandy beaches. How old is your he, son? He's 16. Wow, what a great experience for a kid. For his dad to work that out, that's an aggressive day, and it turned out to be a winner. Yeah, I tried a book. I uh, tour over the Internet, but they were all books, so we just hopped on a train, went to Bayou for the uh, train station and caught a mini tour bus right there, and they took us to all the uh, all his sites that he liked. You know, uh, Europe is really good at that. If there's a demand, there will be some supply, and if people go to Bayou and want to get a, some kind of a quick tour for the day into the countryside, they can certainly do that. And uh, we're talking with a man who does that for a living. It sounds like a good day, Richard. It was a great day. We made it back in Paris, you know, to get to the Eiffel Tower at nighttime. So and he saw all the sites he wanted to see. He had his list of what he wanted to see, and we got them all in. So it was a good day. Excellent. Yeah. And in a couple of years, he'll be going over there without his dad, probably. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> and we got Greg in uh, Issaquah, Washington. Hi, Greg. Thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. And Elwood. How are you doing? Hello there. Uh, I'm going to Paris in a few weeks and was going to do a day trip to Normandy. So I was wondering, is Sunday or Monday bad for going to Normandy? Because I know that so much of France is closed on those days, or the attractions are at least. Uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. Now, Sunday is uh, not much difference between Sunday or Monday, as you said. Rightly say, everything is, is closed down. And don't worry over much about Sunday or Monday. There's not a, not a lot of difference between them. And you'll see as much as you'll need to see on either of those days. And is Carrington close to Enfleur or uh, Cherbourg or anything like that? Carrington is uh, approximately 45 kilometers from uh, Cherbourg. So uh, it, it's just it's just down the road. It's joined by the N13, the the auto route that runs from Cherbourg virtually all the way through to Paris. So it's 25 miles away then. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your call. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about D-Day and the Normandy landings with Elwood von Seibold. Elwood is an Englishman who moved to Normandy a couple of years ago, and today he guides visitors around that fascinating corner of France. We have Dan on the phone from Bellingham, Washington. Hi, Dan. Thanks for your call. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. My girlfriend and I, uh, we have a kind of a break between college, and we're going to take about a two-and-a-half-month trip to Europe and just backpack around. You know, it's going to be full of, like, fun excitement, but we really want to go to Auschwitz, and we're kind of wondering how to prepare ourselves for that. Is there a guided tour, uh, an audio, or should we just kind of um, just kind of walk around ourselves? Well, I, I, I can probably handle Auschwitz, and then we'll let Elwood talk about uh, how do you handle this heavy-duty stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, Auschwitz, I think, of all the concentration camp experiences, is the most powerful. And when you go there, there are audio guides, there's a movie to watch, and Auschwitz is actually two camps. There's the original camp, and then there's the huge camp nearby, Birkenau. Birkenau, right. Birkenau, that's right, And yes. you want to make sure you see both of those as a side trip from Krakow. Uh, the broader issue, uh, what I'd like you to talk about for Dan, is you're going through Europe. It's just fun in the sun, and it's light and happy, mm. and all of a sudden you're going to go to Orador Serglan, a town that was uh, murdered and burned and left in rubble because of uh, uh, Nazis getting even with uh, the local people for killing one of their officers, or you're going to the uh, Normandy beach landing sites, or you're going to a concentration camp. Yes. How do people handle that? What advice do you have for that? The advice I have for people is that you read about the events that transpired in a place which you know in advance is going to be emotionally difficult for you to get to grips with. And that is the best preparation I can say. And the other thing is that I always say to people that take a guide if you can. Now, my first and only visit to Auschwitz was I went with a guide. And that enabled me to keep a hold on my emotions. 
because Auschwitz uh, it's almost impossible to talk about uh, um, the feeling which you have when you first set sight on this most terrible of locations and uh, I was afraid I was literally afraid very apprehensive about how I would react to the situation and this guide was very helpful and kept me kept me going kept jostling me along kept things moving along so I didn't have time to become overwrought and uh, that is the best way I think of dealing with the situation certainly as for me I found a local guide and I spent a whole day at Auschwitz and and if the term I don't think the word fascinating can be applied here but it it, it led me through the day and I came out with a much greater understanding of Auschwitz as a place and what it represented and what happened there than I ever thought that I would have prior to my visit there with this local guide. Is there um, a day that you would suggest going? That you know, if, Is it often crowded on certain days more than others? Well, I, I can't answer that question with all truthfulness, but I mean, it's safe to say that you, if you go there during the summer, you're going to find quite a few people there. It's, it's surprising. Yeah. It's a long way from anywhere, Auschwitz, when you think about it. And it was a long way from anywhere for due good reason. The Germans wanted to cover up their handiwork. Mm -hmm. But uh, I found, if I remember rightly, I found a local guide in Krakow and we drove in this guide's car, and it, it, it was an extremely informative day, and that's what I would suggest you do. Go to Krakow. There is, if I remember rightly, a Jewish center there, and they will provide you with a, with a top-rate guide who really know what they're talking about. So you don't get in over-exaggeration. You get exactly what happened, and uh, you will come away uh, okay. uh, much and, uh, enriched for that experience, may I say. Dan, we're going to have to wrap it up, so I'm going to say thank you very much for your call, Dan. Thank you. You bet. So, Elwood, I like that idea that you would be with a person who does this routinely to keep you grounded and so on and not get too um, heavy about it. On the other hand, it's a, it's a life-changing experience to see these inspirational sites. And I celebrate the opportunity to actually come away from my trip with an understanding of, of some of the tragedies in our recent history. Yes. And I also promise myself to remember my feelings and my emotions and go home and think of myself as a more tuned-in and, and uh, appreciative citizen of the planet that can really work hard to help us learn from history and not repeat it needlessly. Yes. That is the most important message of the day, I think. Let's uh, remember where we've come from, and that will, as the old saying goes, give us an understanding of where we're going to. Exactly. It's the best and most powerful souvenir of any visit to Normandy. I agree. I've been speaking with Elwood von Seibold. His website is ddaybattletours.com, about Normandy and World War II. Thank you, Elwood, so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Rick. For World War II buffs, Normandy is practically a pilgrimage site. But other travelers have their own interests. Tell us about your upcoming travel plans. Let's discuss your itinerary. We're at 877-333-RICK. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I would like to welcome you to this four-star service. We have two bars, and a trolley will be passing through the train. Telephones are also available. Mesdames et messieurs, bonjour. Je suis Serge Wallet, votre chef de bord. Les bagages placés à l'exemple des voitures. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. We have uh, Babek on the phone in Lawrence, Kansas. Hi, Babek. Hey, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Um, I was wondering, uh, your best of Europe itinerary. Yes. Um, can you do it in one month, or is there more to do in Europe after you do that? I mean, how long does it take? I think you're referring to a, an itinerary that I lay out in my Europe Through the Backdoor guidebook called uh, The Whirlwind Tour, where I talk about the best 10-week look at Europe. And that, yeah. that yeah, is, yeah. that's essentially the trip I made as a teenager when I graduated from high school, and it was yeah. assuming a, a two-month Eurail pass. And I, I would recommend flying uh, into London, where you spend time in Britain before you start your Eurail pass and you do your continental thing. 
Um, you know, that's a fast and furious 10-week trip, and you can't do all that any faster in a responsible, reasonable way than what I've laid out. I would remind you a big problem for Americans is we have the shortest vacations in the rich world, and we tend to travel too fast. But just as bad as traveling too fast, and you have this, if it's Tuesday, must be Belgium problem, is traveling too slow. If you're well-organized, you know, and you want to have an intense experience, you can move and move. And I think even in a great city, day number five is not as um, rewarding as day number two in a less great city. The point is you want to be high on that level of daily excitement from a travel point of view as much as you can. And that means keep on moving, factoring in how much time do you spend in transit. You can do a lot in a month, but you certainly can't cover it all in a month. When it comes to Europe, one of my mottos is, assume you will return. I'm going back for 100 days a year for 30 years, and there's still important places I've not even been close to. And that's a blessing. We cannot cover Europe in one trip. Don't try to. I think it's important to assume you'll return because then you can have a regional focus. And I think that generally makes a lot of sense. The uh, exception is doing that whirlwind introductory tour that you might be thinking of where you have the little sampler and you and you zip all over the place. Uh, I laid out that whirlwind itinerary, you know, a generation ago, and since then, the transportation infrastructure has become so much better that instead of taking eight hours to get from London to Paris and eight hours to get from Madrid to Seville, those trips are now two and a half hours or less even because of bullet trains and big tunnels. Does that give you some ideas? Yes, thank you. You're thinking of uh, a one-month trip through Europe and you're thinking of a rail pass? Yes, yeah, sort of a rail Trip, yeah. yeah, the year rail pass covers uh, all of Western Europe. I think it's 17 countries, and they're expensive, but they're really a good value if you keep moving. If you want to do the whirlwind tour in one month, I just think that is very exciting, and you want to have a year rail pass so you can hop on that train and go for it. And remember, every night you spend on a train, you save a, a day of your precious itinerary. Yes. Uh, you won't sleep well, but you'll sleep well the next night. You'll be at the beer hall in Munich till midnight, and then you stumble over to the train station to get on the train. You'll wake up 8 o'clock the next morning in Venice. It's a whole different world. All right. Thank you. Have fun. Thanks. Jill in Sammamish emails us, and Jill writes, I'd like to take my 84-year-old mother on a short, one-week European vacation. Self-guided, not a bus tour. Uh, My mom's spry, healthy, and can walk faster than I can, but she tires easily, as you can imagine. Is there any one particular place you'd suggest? Would Bruges be a good candidate? If so, when's the best time of year? Well, Bruges is a delightful city, and if I was thinking of a spry 84-year-old woman and looking for some uh, great place in Europe... Bruges could be a very nice candidate. A nice thing about Bruges is you can cruise. This is the uh, jewel-like medieval former superpower that's now sort of mothballed back in its uh, old state. Very touristy now, but for good reason. It's the historic must-see in Belgium. It's got wonderful architecture. It's got a Michelangelo statue. It's got a towering brick cathedral. Uh, It's got wonderful canals, great food. It's a cheery sort of carillon kind of place. In Bruges, the beautiful thing, if you are not uh, wanting to expend a lot of energy, is you can tour it by canal boat. So you and your grandma or you and your mom can just hop on that boat and slowly glide by all this uh, medieval wonder. You can also... In Bruges here, the Carillon concert, you can sit in the courtyard of the church and listen to them ring those bells as they have for centuries. And in Bruges, you can sit on the square and just watch Belgium go by, enjoying uh, the local specialties. If your mom likes beer, that's the thing to drink there. Mussels are very popular. And there's a sort of a elegance in the cafe scene in Bruges, well, all over Europe, that you can enjoy. I think Bruges would be a fine place. A wonderful thing your mother might be interested in doing is touring World War I sites from Bruges using Bruges as a home base. There are small-time tour operators that run minibus tours from Bruges out into the uh, battlefields of World War I. And for a lot of people, that's a fascinating experience. If you're more into lace, maybe that's a more feminine thing to be interested in, you can go to the lace school where the uh, grannies of Bruges are teaching the younger generation how to keep that tradition, the great lace-making tradition of Belgium, alive. You can actually witness that and spend a lot of time enjoying that aspect of the culture, striving to stay healthy as we move into the modern world. Anytime you're considering taking an older person traveling and you're wondering, is this going to be too grueling physically, I'd remind you that the most grueling thing about European travel is the heat and the crowds of summer. Uh, When to go? Just avoid the middle of the summer if you can help it. Bundle up and you'll be doing yourself a huge favor. Good luck, Joe, traveling with your 84-year-old mother. Jennifer in Minneapolis, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for your call. My husband and I are contemplating a baby moon. 
I'm five months pregnant, and I was just wondering what things I need to keep in mind with pregnant travel abroad, and if you have any particularly pregnant-friendly cities, you know, walkable and all of that. Boy, it's been so long since I've been pregnant. Let me just think about that. Um, Actually, I remember when my wife was pregnant, we traveled in Europe, and it was actually easier to travel in Europe. Uh, I haven't heard that term, baby moon. I like that. We had a baby moon, knowing it would be uh, more complicated later, and actually... It was much easier to travel pregnant than it was with a six-month or an eight-month-old because we went again the next year, and it was a a lot more complicated. Um, I do know one concern is, you know, cruise ships and airlines have rules. They don't want to let people who are well into their pregnancy on board because, obviously, they don't want to have an emergency childbirth on their hands. (laughs) I I believe that airlines have a a rule. uh, It's not consistently enforced, but domestic flights, they don't like you on if you're more than 36 weeks pregnant, and for international flights, more than 32 weeks into your pregnancy. Have you learned anything about that? Yes, my doctor has told me that. Is that, uh, as far as you know, strictly enforced or just advised? Advised. Advised, okay, because Anne and I went on a cruise when she was well beyond that, and uh, they were real nervous, and we had to sign something, but we took the risk and had a great time. Okay. But I could tell that they were concerned about that. So if somebody is contemplating a baby moon, things mm-hmm. probably go, obviously, easier in the earlier times, and uh, the last thing I am is an expert on pregnancies, but I've heard that the second trimester is uh, comfortable and to travel in. Have you heard anything about that? Yes, and that's what I'm in. I'm in the second trimester, okay. and that's what the doctor said. It's usually the best time to, that's to good. travel. All right, and as far as pregnant-friendly destinations in Europe, I don't think there's a particularly pregnant-friendly destination. I would remind you that Many Americans are a little uptight about having to use foreign medical service, and they just can't imagine getting good care in Portugal or Greece or something like that. And I I would say that there's no basis for that kind of a concern. I think you can get quality. I think, frankly, you can get American quality health care anywhere in Western Europe. I wouldn't worry too much about that if you hear stories about that. I would remind you that the most grueling thing about European travel for anybody that's wondering if physically they can do this comfortably is the heat in the crowds of summer. It's mm-hmm. very, very hot and crowded in the Mediterranean part of Europe in the summertime. So scoot beyond that. Also remember that there's a lot of crowds there anytime, and you're doing yourself a huge favor if you think carefully about avoiding lines. Uh, you don't want to stand in lines needlessly, I'm sure, when you're pregnant, and you can get around that by making reservations and hiring local guides and so on. There's, you know, if you budget a little bit extra for some of those conveniences, I think the trip will be a lot smoother and more enjoyable. Okay, sounds great. Best wishes. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Sam's on the phone in Fullerton, California. Hi, Sam. Hey, Rick. How you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. I have a question about Germany. I will be traveling to Germany this summer on my own, and my primary purpose for going there is to visit all the small little towns where my ancestors are from. And these are towns that aren't necessarily located near large cities, so I was curious, what would you recommend as a means of travel? What is the best way to get to these small towns? You know, every town in Europe, I would hazard to say, is accessible by public transportation not by train necessarily, but at least by bus and by regular bus. Uh, When I give my lectures and I talk about transportation, I've got a a slide that shows the dead end of a train line with a train parked there and the tiniest train station. And then just across the street, there are the buses lined up and there's a schedule board at the train station of buses departing from that train station. So the, the train station is kind of the hub from where buses depart, generally synchronized with the arrival of each train to destinations nearby. Point is, if you know how to use the public transportation system, you can get to those smallest towns when you're looking up your relatives out there in the the little villages of Germany. Okay. And um, say, worst-case scenario, if there wasn't that option, Mm -hmm. I think just from what I've done so far, the research that I've done, I can get maybe within a couple miles of the small little town. Now, would it be okay to to walk, because I think I could manage to walk a mile or so, mm-hmm. or um, would it be better to take a taxi? Uh, what would you recommend in that Well, case? if there is a taxi, you could take the taxi if you had the money. Um, you could hitchhike. Uh, you know, I find myself hitching in Europe when the public transportation lets me down. And you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're obviously a tourist, and you look like a friendly guy. And it's very easy if you get eye contact and smile with somebody. They'll say... Uh, Voganzi, you know, where are you going? And, and you'll say, 
uh, do you speak English? And they'll realize, oh, you're a tourist, and, and you'll hop in, and they'll take you where you want to go, and you'll probably make a friend en route. So you can hike, you can take a taxi, or you can walk. Or when I'm traveling in Europe, I always have a cell phone. If you have the phone numbers of people, you know, give them a call, and they can come and pick you up. Okay. Um, how much do you think those cell phones cost? You know, cell phones in Europe, uh, there's three ways to get cell phones. You can rent them from companies that provide them for travelers, business travelers generally. And I think that's the worst scenario okay. for most of us. I mean, there's some cases when it's good, but generally that's bad. Uh, you can bring your own cell phone from home and assuming it's, I, I think it's four band. Uh, mine's, I got T-Mobile, it works over there. And then you just got to go into the menu and you got to change the band uh, width. Sorry, I'm not a technician on this, but you know, you go from 800 to 1800 or whatever it says there. Talk to your phone company about how to do that. But then my phone works in Europe, and there's a one dollar a minute roaming charge, roughly, and it's really quite reasonable. So um, I'm calling uh, sparingly with my American cell phone in Europe, and that works for me. But I am mindful of the fact that I have an American cell phone in Europe. Therefore, my European friends that want to call me are having to call the United States, which is quite pricey for them. The best okay. route to go, the best option is to, and it's a fun experience, you go to the corner cell phone shop, and they're everywhere in Europe now. It's just uh, Europe is inundated with the cell phone business, and you buy the cheapest cell phone you can right there with your own policy that uh, gives you a chip, a SIM card. And then you got so many minutes, and you got your own local number, and it costs you uh, just peanuts to call locally, and it costs other people almost nothing to call you, and you're set up like a European with your own European phone number. Your loved ones from home can call you. You can call people you meet along the way. You can call and confirm things. You can be a smarter traveler. And I would say generally in Europe, you can get your own cell phone with a SIM card and minutes, not a lot of minutes, but enough minutes to get you going, for 60 or $70. Okay, not bad. All right. Good All luck, right. and I hope you have fun looking up your ancestors. Thank you so much, Rick. You bet. Bye now. Tom in Newport Beach, California, emails us, and Tom writes... Going to Barcelona, would like to get an expert local guide and food expert to take me around half a day for the best food tapas wine cafes where the real locals go. How much is a good deal? Is it better to go with a local university student or a professional tour guide? Boy, Tom, I've found that any local person that's out and about in these great cities knows plenty to take me around and impress me in the markets and help me find some good tapas bars and so on. If you do want to hire a local guide, every country has local guides. They book out for a couple hundred dollars for half a day, and uh, they can certainly be booked in the evening. They're independent operators, and they're just trying to fill up their schedule so they can earn a living. You can Google you know, tour guides Barcelona, or you can look at a guidebook which would list guides in Barcelona, or you could find the local guides guild through the local tourist office. I, in my research, love to have a local person, a food expert, or just a, a local who likes to eat, to help show me around. Last time I was in Barcelona, my local friend, who happens to be a guide, went running around in the evening. We checked out a lot of restaurants and found some beautiful places that I was happy to stick in the new edition of my guidebook. Vicky in Phoenix emailed us, and she writes, we're looking at the possibility of traveling to Croatia and wanted to know where your favorite place to spend a week would be. Boy, Croatia is very popular these days. Everybody wants to go to Dubrovnik, and I can understand why. Uh, the big question is, where do you go from Dubrovnik? For 20 years, I've always thought, oh, you got to go to Korčula. Everybody loves Korčula. It's just a mini uh, sort of version of Dubrovnik, the, what do they call it, the Pearl of the Adriatic. But I was there this last summer, and I found that Korčula is inundated with tourists, and it's quite sterile. And I would rather have an adventure. And I would go a couple of hours inland from Dubrovnik to Mostar in Bosnia. And Bosnia is just thriving these days. It's still war damaged. There's still huge and deep scars among the local populace there as they were killing each other just uh, 20 years ago. You make friends there and you realize what a poignant recent history they have. There's parks that were parks until 1992 when the war broke out. And then you couldn't bury your lost loved ones in regular cemeteries because they were within view of the snipers on the other side of the boulevard that marked the front of this ethnic struggle. So they had to use the parks that were out of the line of fire for cemeteries. And there's entire parks that have been turned into cemeteries and most are all with tombstones that have the same date on them, 1993. A very powerful travel experience, lots of hope, lots of energy, lots of positive spirit right now in Mostar. And I just absolutely, I was emotionally exhausted and at the same time just turned on to no end by my visit to Mostar in Bosnia as a side trip from Dubrovnik. 
uh, Vicky, who's uh, emailing us from Phoenix, Arizona, is talking about the best week in Croatia. And if you had a little more time, also, where would you go? Well, the top site is Dubrovnik. From there, a side trip to Mostar. I would say Split is the major no-nonsense city on the Adriatic coastline split and it's a wonderful city to check out and then my favorite stop from a romantic tourism sightseeing point of view between Venice and Dubrovnik along that coast is in the Istrian Peninsula and it's called Rovine R-O-V-I-N-J sort of a miniature Venice with a Slavic flair Rovine on the tip of the Istrian Peninsula in Croatia Sweet Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And, if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here are some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. Summer Horton lives in Wasilla, Alaska. She remembers a trip to England with this haiku. Cobblestones to spires. City aglow with magic. Oxford remembered. Liz Wilson of Cincinnati, Ohio writes us this evocative haiku. Steamy Borneo. Old men love to nap in mosques. Plush carpet invites. And Chris Cooley of Olympia, Washington, says the traveling for his wife was rather touch and go before she discovered a little pharmaceutical help. This haiku celebrates the relief it brings. It's not easy being green, can't fly, can't snorkel. Thanks for Dramamine. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Music excerpts on today's program included World War II-era selections from France by Raymond Legrand and Germaine Sablon, the Boston Symphony with Barbara Adagio for strings, the sounds of a morning ride on the Eurostar train with music from the films of Jacques Tati, Chad and Jeremy, and DeJolie. Thanks for production help to Rachel Unk, Andrew Wakeling, and Robin Stencil. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. For example, just for France, you can choose from four exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalog and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.